0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight
1: loss. Hawaii's Supreme Court flips the double bird at the Constitution in your Second Amendment rights. Israel discovers a Hamas tunnel under a UN refugee center in Gaza, and the UN totally knew nothing about it. There was this little thing called the Super Bowl last night, and well, I've got some thoughts. And then we can't forget about the Federalist Papers because Federalist number seven gets the study guide treatment right here on today's Critical Thinking. That's right, I'm Andrew Coppins. You can follow me on social media, I'm at the Coppins Show. Um, I mainly Uh, go to x so if that's where you are feel free to interact i absolutely love interacting with you and hearing your thoughts and opinions on subjects because frankly here's the reality of actually being a critical thinker you know that you don't know everything even though i'm here giving you opinions on things from all sorts of different perspectives and genres but all of that out of the way, thank you to each and every single one of you that subscribe to the Rumble channel, rumble.com backslash critical thinking, where you can see the show every single day as well as on X. So if you're not uh, following over at the Cop and show there, well, you can and you will see the show every single Monday through Friday. And on top of all of that, you can always subscribe Follow, rate, review. Make sure you download the podcast every single Monday through Friday. Thank you to all of you who take time out of your day to listen to my dulcet tones. With that being said, the hangover of the Super Bowl, um, I'm just going to get it out of the way here because, frankly, I think the most important part of the Super Bowl yesterday was the game itself. Within the game, of course, prop bets and all of that wonderful goodness, and I cannot believe they set the Taylor Swift line of not references, but showing Taylor Swift in the crowd at just five and a half. That was like easy, easy money for those who participated in that prop bet because uh, by our count, it was a good 12 times during the physical game from kickoff to the end of overtime 12 an actual dozen her boo travis kelsey also by the way making headlines for being a complete and utter tool i know most of you are shocked by that if you pay attention to the nfl but um Body checking your own head coach because you're mad that you weren't in on one specific play? Yeah, um, we're going to have some serious conversations after the season's over because that should never, and I mean never, ever happen. Only tools do that. You want to be mad at your head coach. You want to get into a shouting match. You do that behind closed doors. You talk to him at halftime or elsewhere. You you don't do that. That is one of the very few cardinal rules of player-coach interactions. But it was just in the spirit of competition. Andy Reid tried to downplay it after the game, Travis Kelsey tried to downplay it, uh, a meager apology at that. But the reality of the situation is this, this should never have come to that. Because lest we forget that, I get it, heat of the moment competition, the Kansas City Chiefs and San Francisco 49ers put on one of the greatest shows in Super Bowl history. Oh, sure, there were other fantastic finishes, high-scoring games, yada, yada, yada. But from a pure football-watching perspective, this game was fascinating. I mean, think about this, right? The game-winning touchdown, break it down from that perspective for a second. Let me know. What you think about it? Because when you watch that play, it's literally a tenth of a second one way or the other on the um on the motion that the wide receiver had to help clear Travis Kelsey so that he can then go back out into the flat to get that touchdown to win the game. Fascinating. Fascinating defensive play calling versus offensive play calling. The moments throughout this game were just incredible to watch all three facets of the game vital to what took place there. Um, Jake Moody had a really good opportunity. If San Francisco would have won this game to have been the MVP along with Greg or not Greg. Sorry. That's the Packer in me. uh, Juwan Jennings throwing for a touchdown catching a touchdown Christian McCaffrey with a really solid efforts uh, in both phases, both the pass catching and rushing game, George Kittle doing next to nothing. Travis Kelsey having maybe one good play versus just average stuff from him throughout the rest of the game because of how they game planned around him. Um, the, the spy moments versus not spy moments on Pat Mahomes and everything in between, I thought were absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So all of that to say, this for me is probably one of the top five Super Bowls of my life. Um, you know, obviously the Packers winning two of those Super Bowls in my lifetime are going to be in that mix regardless of how good the game was, but from a neutrals perspective, I thought it was fascinating. And then let's get off the field real quick because I'm just going to say this. Outside of maybe two or three commercials, I thought maybe one of the Uber Eats commercials uh, where people were forgetful of the main things that they're famous for in their lives. Um, I thought that was a really good one. The Christopher Walken BMW commercial where everybody's doing the Walken impression to him, to his face throughout his day. thought that was a great one. And then the M&M's. Uh, peanut butter uh, commercial I thought was great outside of that I'm pretty disappointed in the commercials for the third straight Super Bowl uh, just boring unimaginative drivel and I don't know why you would pay the money that you pay to put that commercial together I really don't and also uh, side note to all of you idiots that keep ordering off a tamu or Timu or whatever the hell it's called stop Just literally stop, okay? Good piece of advice for you. Uh, That's all I'm going to say on that. So with that being said, now is a really good time for us to get into the crux of the show. Because as I mentioned up front here, this is a story that happened last week, but because of all of the craziness that took place late in the week, kind of got lost in the shuffle for a lot of people, but it is a vitally important story, especially if you are a Second Amendment kind of advocate um, on the islands of Hawaii. Because the Hawaii Supreme Court flipped the double bird at the Constitution and your Second Amendment rights. What you need to know here is, in this story, is that the Supreme Court of Hawaii was attempting to have to decide whether there's an individual right to carry a gun. Thus, you have the right to carry it outside of your house. Currently in Hawaii, unless you have a very set specific kind of licenses, whether I think it's for like actual game hunting and something else, bringing a weapon outside of a home is a felony in that state on those islands. Crazy considering Heller Crazy, considering everything else, but Hawaii has decided the Constitution doesn't matter because it's, quote-unquote, not a suicide pact. No bleep, Sherlock. And it's all being done in the name of public safety from those who want to be able to carry a gun outside of their home to protect themselves from the criminals who don't care about your laws. But I digress. Now, you might say, "What Heller?" but Braam, but a few other decisions that have long-standing precedent now and the fact that um, there's enumerated individual rights all over the Constitution, including this one. Outside of that, Hawaii decided that there is no individual right to a gun in the Constitution. They believe the Second Amendment was really just a quote-unquote collective right because militias are collectives. Never mind the fact that you only form that collective based off of the volunteer effort of, wait for this, individuals having the individual gun. It's like they don't know what a militia is, almost. Now, this, folks, as I read the ruling, is one of the most asinine, insane rulings I have ever seen because the job, yes, of the, of the court is to rule on the merits of the case in front of them, but it's also to take into consideration precedent, to take into consideration Supreme Court, the laws of the United States of America, and the laws of Hawaii, right? The laws of the locality, the municipality, all sorts of things, right? Somehow, on the Second Amendment, states' rights are superseding constitutional right. How insane was, the rule, was this ruling? How radical was this ruling? Well, folks, let's read along together, shall we? This is from the actual Hawaii Supreme Court ruling. Bruin's command to find an old days analog undercuts the other branches' responsibility at the federal, state, and local levels to preserve public order and solve today's problems, and it downplays human beings' aptitude for technological advancement. Time traveling to 1791 or 1868 to color how a state regulates lethal weapons per the Constitution's democratic design is a dangerous way to look at the federal Constitution. The Constitution is not a suicide pact. I, I told you they said that. Then they continue saying that we believe it is a misplaced view to think that today's public safety laws must look like laws passed long ago. Smooth bore muzzle loaded in powder and ramrod muskets were not exactly useful to colonial era mass murderers. And life is a bit different now in a nation with a lot more people stretching to islands in the Pacific ocean. Unless you think that was crazy. Let's just go here because this is the final sentence in the the ruling. As the world turns it makes no sense for contemporary society to pledge allegiance to the founding era's culture, realities, laws and understanding of the constitution. Quote, the thing about the old days, they the old days. Now you if you're a fan of television you might be going wait a second where the hell have I heard the thing about the old days, they the old days. Where the hell did I hear that? Oh, um, that, that quote came from the HBO classic, The Wire. Slim Jones, the one of the most famous characters on that show, if you've ever watched it. Um We're now quoting The Wire in a constitutional argument a fictitious program now that's exactly how unserious we are as a people because we're the ones putting these judges in place and if we're not the ones in hawaii doing it then you're putting the people In positions to elect these people and put them there, or whatever their apparatus is, some level you all hold responsibility. Can we just quickly go back and break this down? We believe it is a misplaced view to think that today's public safety laws must look like laws passed long ago, smooth more. Uh, smooth bore muzzle loaded in powder and ramrod muskets were not exactly useful to colonial era mass murderers yeah it was only useful for weight on this one mass murdering in war and self-defense because it is the tool that they had at the time in the moment This not just flies in the face of, this doesn't just fly in the face, excuse me, of judicial presence, uh, presence, precedence, excuse me. This doesn't fly in the face of just the constitution. This doesn't just fly in the face of common sense. This flies in the face of decency. This is insulting, this level of ruling. But, now Hawaii better not go out of your house with a gun because, you know, as they put it, right, it's not a suicide pact, first of all. And secondly, it makes no sense for contemporary society to pledge allegiance to the founding eras, culture, realities, laws, and understanding of the Constitution. That means there's no point in the Constitution. We've talked a lot about the fact that the social compact, the the political formula the machinations of our society. There's one side that doesn't believe in the Constitution. There's another side that believes the Constitution is pretty malleable. You you can make laws, you can amend the Constitution, you can change things vis-a-vis law within the constitutional framework, and that the Constitution, the writers, the framers, right, they were very clear as to what they were meaning by what they said, what they did, and what they wrote. They like to talk about what they did, what they were debating a lot. Yet we can't contemporize. We have to we have to Split apart the Constitution? So, Hawaii, does the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, maybe the Sixth Amendment... What about the Tenth Amendment? Should we just get rid of that, right? After all, all it's good for is what? All it's good for is is to make sure that you as the states have your rights. Eh, screw the Constitution. I just... I don't know what to tell you, but this is nuts. But, folks, this is also enlightening because if you need to know these are either elected or put in place, right, or um, selected individuals in a state who are duty-bound by the laws of the Constitution, right? They literally swear an oath to it, who say, bleep your Constitution right to your face, all of them should be removed from office immediately for just this simple writing. Again, it makes no sense for contemporary society to pledge allegiance, aka put the right hand up, and or put the hand on the Bible, put your right hand up, and swear allegiance to their culture, their realities, their laws, and the understanding of the Constitution. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we as a society can't change things that we as a society are just duty bound by the knowledge stopping in 1776 of course not but there's literally a process that they gave us it's called the amendment process you can change the constitution you can do those things but you don't have the right to just piss it all away however you want on your own without any input from anybody else, without us agreeing to that change, you are just simply saying, we don't believe in the Constitution. But you'll pick and choose which other parts to enforce, right? So some of the Constitution's good for you, but this part, nah. And and because this part isn't, we have to let you know that that's because we don't believe that. We have to know the, the contemporary uh, aspects of what the Constitutional writers what those writers and framers of our government were talking about we don't need to know that we don't need to know their thoughts to say yeah nah would they have been pro prohibition back then no yet we did that vis-a-vis an amendment process and then like a decade later said yeah nah that was a terrible idea Turns out personal responsibility is probably the better method here and people are just going to find a way to illegally do these things and it created more crime and and addiction and horrific things in our society than it was intended. I just... Woof, people. Woof. How, how is this allowed to stand? The, if you live on the islands of Hawaii... I understand that it is a highly democratic area, but I also know that there's a deep, rich tradition of hunting and fishing on these islands. I also know that there's a deep tradition of just simply kind of the machismo, if you will, the warrior spirit. Where is it you've been so placated and that's to talk nothing about um, Maui and the wildfires and what's going on with the government stealing property just magically condemning it with hey I'll clean it up or we'll pay for the cleanup but we want our historic land. I, I just I have no idea how these people sit there and just take this crap. These people need to be removed from their positions. This is anti. If you don't believe in the Constitution, its realities, its laws, and its way it was written, for what purpose it was written, if you don't believe in that, you don't believe in our social compact, in our political formula. You know better than, right? Were the experts. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. Also, disgusting, by the way, here um, is our second story Hamas, they tunneled under a UN Palestinian refugee headquarters in Gaza. That's right, folks. From the Daily Wire. Top-secret Hamas Intelligence Center discovered beneath UN aid group's Gaza headquarters, according to the Israeli military. Hamas terrorists hit a top-secret intelligence center underneath the UN's Palestinian Refugee Agency, UNRWA is the acronym, in Gaza, uncovered by the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli military said on Saturday. The Hamas Intelligence Center included an electrical room, industrial battery, power banks, and a living space for the terrorists, the Times of Israel reported. The IDF's discovery comes after revelations that at least a dozen of the agency's workers. That's right, folks. So I'm going to leave that alone because this is going to be an important part here, but think about this. It's almost as if the terrorists know where they need to work hide themselves because they know how to take advantage of somebody else's humanitarian belief system, somebody else's rules of engagement of war. And by the way, don't at me with this whole, but the Israelis are killing Palestinian civilians in droves crap. This war was started by Hamas killing Men, women, children, babies, anybody that was Jewish, looked Jewish, for whatever the hell that means, and wasn't Jewish, around Jewish people, they were just looking to slaughter all of them. They slaughtered Israeli citizens. And then when they were told to flee northern Gaza to southern Gaza, right, what did they do? sniped their own people in the attempt to fictionalize stories about the bad Israelis. Here's the utter reality for all of you who don't want to deal with it. Here it is. War is messy. Israel has, by and large, attempted to mitigate against the loss of life as much as humanly possible. This would be akin to, and maybe this is a good one, right? The 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 videos that we see of the massive Nazi rally, right, that took place where? In New York City at Madison Square Garden here in America, right? It would be akin to those people running our media, running the stories, all of that, in World War II and demanding we don't drop the bombs on Dresden and, and elsewhere, right? Because, oh, my God, civilians. We we cannot target all the civilians except for when, did we, when we did that, what did we do? Uh, we gave them warning that we were coming so that the civilians could get the hell out. You, you stayed at your own risk. But this idea that we have to tell you every single moment and this, that, and everything else, Are they or are they not attempting to mitigate as much as possible for civilian issues? By and large, that is happening. Are there stray things happening? Yeah, war is messy. It's not perfect. And any suggestion that there is a perfect war or a perfect way to fight a war, because that's exactly what this is, by the way, is insane. Same people demanding a one-way ceasefire. Let's be real about that. Because the only way a ceasefire works is a two-state solution, right? Except for only one side of the the coin wants to negotiate from that perspective, which would be the Israelis. Except for they know the truth of the matter, right? Israel is attempting as pinpoint as possible.
0: bomb.
1: laser-guided missiles, and targeted at actual Hamas terrorists. Hamas also knows they have a sympathetic ear in the West. They have sympathy from their fellow left-wing Marxist travelers because that's exactly who they are. So they tunnel under hospitals, civilian buildings. They tunnel under the UN Refugee Agency inside Gaza. Oh, no. oh, by the way, um, when they were attacking this area, right, they got 32 hostages back. They found them. God. But, Andrew, the story here shouldn't have anything to do with the UN. the it, it, Hamas terrorists, except for what if I told you that UNRWA, I think it's UNRWA, 12 members of that group, 12 of that agency were known members of Hamas tied directly to the October 7th attacks. That's right. They were tied directly to either committing the attacks or providing material aid and abetting all of it. You know, totally humanitarian above board because, you know, Gaza is, is, uh, you know, they're being shut off by Israel and those bastards, right? except for
0: they're
1: the ones stealing Hamas is the one who doesn't engage in actual electrical power and water and the the basic necessities because Israel's only responsible for about twenty five to thirty percent. but hey, you know, hey, here's the reality again. We see it time and time again. It's the same playbook from these absolute monsters in Hamas. Yes, you're a bunch of monsters. They know where to go, they're taking advantage of Israel and its Western belief in rules of war, its humanitarian view on fighting war knowing they wouldn't dare to just take a site like this out because, oh my God, you went after the UN, except for we're right below it. They know how to play the game. They're attempting to play the game. And if you are dumb enough to fall for the trap and then start demanding like our government is, right? Our government is now starting to side with Hamas. Our government is now signaling it's going to be giving money to Hamas, because it's totally beholden to left-wing Marxists. They may not necessarily all be of that ilk, but they are beholden to them. There's, that's the only answer here, folks. That is it. Otherwise, what other world would you be giving any money, humanitarian or elsewise, to a group that is still holding Americans hostage. They still have Americans that we are not even interested in doing anything about. But we're going to give them money? What are we doing? What are we doing? Now, as you think of that, take a little sip out of your mug, like I'm about to, if you're wanting to. Mm. That's right. the Sweet sweetness of coffee brand coffee in your cup. That's right. A coffee brand that cares about coffee and not some sort of political message being delivered or your money going to politics that you hate. It, it goes right back into finding and producing Really quality coffee. So go to coffeebrandcoffee.com. Do business with a business that doesn't want to insult you. Give them your money. And then enter the promo code CRITICALTHINKER at checkout for 10% off of your purchase today. That's right, friends. Our fine friends at coffeebrandcoffee.com. Promo code CRITICALTHINKER at checkout for 10% off of your purchase. With that all having been said... We still have a little bit of time to go here on today's program because, well, we've got to talk about the Federalist Papers, and we are on Federalist number seven today. We see Alexander Hamilton back behind the pen or the printing press or, or however they were producing it back then. But Hamilton is the author, and we are continuing to deal with the theme of states hating on each other, if you will, and making war or as it was actually titled, Concerning Dangers from Dissensions Between the States. And this essay really does attempt to take a look at how the states may make war against each other versus being united and holding off on real hostilities against one another, like had already happened and had already begun to arise under the loose Articles of Confederation. That's right, folks. The loose articles of confederation we already had proof that um, territorial disputes were were a problem <clears throat> as hamilton notes it is sometimes asked with an air of seeming triumph what inducements could the states have if disunited to make war upon each other it would be a full answer to this question to say precisely the same inducements which have at different times deluged in blood, all the nations in the world. But unfortunately for us, the question admits of a more particular answer. There are causes of differences within our immediate contemplation of the tendency of which, even under the restraints of a federal constitution, we have had sufficient experience to enable us to form a judgment of what might be expected if those restraints were removed. In other words, Hamilton is saying, We don't even need to look to other nations. We don't need to necessarily look to history. We were experiencing this, and there's a bunch of inducements. There's a bunch of reasons. There's a bunch of things that are going on that will put you right into war. Things like territorial disputes, commerce, debt, private contracts, alliances. I know, shocking, but um, Hamilton gives us this on the question of just simply territory, the dividing lines of now what would be separate nations or confederacies vis-a-vis the other side. He points this out. Territorial disputes have at, time, at all times been found one of the most fertile sources of hostility among nations. Perhaps the greatest proportion of wars that have desolated the earth have sprung from this origin this cause would exist among us in full force. We have a vast tract of unsettled territory within the boundaries of the United States. There there still are discordant and undecided claims between several of them, and the dissolution of the Union would lay a foundation for similar claims between them all. It is well known that they have heretofore had serious and animated discussion concerning the rights to the lands which are ungranted at the time of the Revolution in which usually went under the name of crown lands. The states within the limits of whose colonial governments they were comprised have claimed them as their property. The others have contended that the rights of the crown in this article devolved upon the Union especially as to all that part of the Western territory which, either by actual possession or through the submission of the Indian proprietors, was subjected to the jurisdiction of the King of Great Britain, till it was relinquished in the Treaty of Peace. This, it has been said, was at all events an acquisition to the Confederacy by compact with a foreign power, It has been the prudent policy of Congress to appease this controversy by prevailing upon the states to make concessions to the United States for the benefit of the whole. This has been so far accomplished as under a continuation of the Union to afford a decided prospect of an amicable termination of the dispute. Again, so basically he's laying this foundational work of there's already territorial disputes because of what was taking place with the peace treaty to end the American Revolution, now the Confederacy, the Articles of Confederation, this union of the 13 colonies. There's tons of different claims to different Western lands, and how do we dispute and solve these peacefully? Right? If it were, at an end, the states which made the session on a principle of federal compromise would be apt when the motive of the grant has ceased to reclaim the lands as a reversion. The other states would no doubt insist on a proportion by right of representation. Their argument would be that a grant once made could not be revoked and that the justice of participating in territory acquired or secured by the joint efforts of the Confederacy remained undiminished if, contrary to probability, it should be admitted by all the states that each had a right to a share of this common stock there would still be a difficulty to be surmounted as to a proper rule of appointment. Different principles would be set up by different States for this purpose. And as they would affect the opposite interest of the parties, they might not easily be susceptible to a uh, passive Pacific adjustment. So again, what there's what Hamilton is attempting to look at here is you think for one moment that they wouldn't go to war over, Western lands that that they all have a claim to because it was from the crown to the U.S. Articles of Confederation, uh, Confederacy, right? You don't think that? What, what part of history and reality right now would suggest that, eh, we'll just, yeah, we'll go ahead and give it up? But he continues to prove this like this. Those who had an opportunity of seeing the inside of the transactions which which attended the progress of the controversy between this state and the district of Vermont, and I believe it's Massachusetts or New York. Or no, excuse me, it's Connecticut in Vermont. Excuse me. But anyway can vouch for the opposition we experienced as well from states not interested as far from those which were interested in the claim, and can attest the danger to which the peace of the Confederacy might have been exposed had this state attempted to assert its rights by force. That's the key here. How do you assert your right? If if by peace you can't, it must be by force. Two motives, they continue, preponderated, In that opposition, one, a jealousy entertained of our future power. and the other, the interest of certain individuals of influence in the neighboring states who had obtained grants of land under the actual government of that district. Even the states which brought forward claims in contradiction to ours seemed more salacious to dismember this state than to establish their own pretensions. These were New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. New Jersey and Rhode Island, upon all occasions, discovered a warm zeal for the independence of Vermont. And Maryland, till alarmed by the appearance of a connection between Canada and that state, entered deeply into the same views. These being small states, saw with an unfriendly eye the perspective of our growing greatness. In a review of these transactions, we may trace some of the causes which would be likely to embroil the states with each other if it should be their unproprietist destiny to become disunited. He's saying, look at all the, the should-be disinterested parties who became interested in this territorial dispute between New York and Vermont, not Connecticut, New York and Vermont, right? Like, Vermont needs to be its own state, and this, that, and everything else in between. I'm not saying, I'm just saying that they noted, hey, um, it, it, we can avoid this by everybody agreeing to a unified principle in, in a federal state of government that can handle these disputes amongst these places peacefully. That's the reality in front of us. But it continues saying that commerce is another area you have to look at for the potential for these states, would which would be their own countries, if there was a disunion to take place, right? You know, so we've talked about territorial disputes. What about commerce? Well, he says here, Hamilton, the competitions of commerce would be another fruitful source of contention. The state's less favorably circumstanced would be desirous of escaping from the disadvantages of local situation and of sharing in the advantages of their more fortunate neighbors. Each state or separate confederacy would pursue a system of commercial policy peculiar to itself. This would occasion distinctions, preferences, and exclusions which would beget discontent the habits of intercourse on the basis of equal privileges to which we have been accustomed since the earliest settlement of the country would give a keener edge to those causes of discontent than they would naturally have independent of this circumstance. In other words, because we've been largely unified, because we see um, a unified interest, it, it has made less the the fire that would burn for the jealousy, for the individual needs, right, to be met. That fire burning, burning, burning instead is being tamped down for the interests of making sure we are a strong commerce nation. He also can, you know, notes here that uh that there would be local situations that would be disadvantageous, and then that means that that locale would want to make advantageous, as much as possible, commerce with other locales. But would that locale agree to it, and would they hold their end of their bargain, and, and then what? But he continues saying, We should be ready to denominate injuries "...those things which were in reality the justifiable acts of independent sovereignties consulting a distinct interest. The spirit of enterprise, which characterizes the commercial part of America, has left no occasion of displaying itself unimproved. It is not at all probable that this unbridled spirit would pay much respect to those regulations of trade by which particular states might endeavor to secure exclusive benefits to their own citizens." The infractions of these regulations on one side, the efforts to prevent and repel them on the other, would naturally lead to outrages, and thus, and these to reprisals and wars. And he's right. When you take a look at privateering, when you take a look at everything that was going down in that time, when you take a look at the the history of pirates or privateering, when you take a look at the United States' long history of saying, bleep you, to Britain and trading amongst themselves with the Caribbean nations and amongst themselves rather than with England and the West Indies Tea Company and the, you know, blah, 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 or the East India Tea Company and yada, yada, yada. Point of the matter is that well, there's a long history here. And you think that New York would just stand by idly if South Carolina said nah we're we're gonna we're gonna trade with Vermont for a better price uh, undercutting your good and making you less prosperous you, you think they're just gonna stand by and let that happen. Oh but we're we're still honoring our agreement with you we're not telling you that uh, we're doing it with Vermont right what? That's the reality. But it's not just that commerce is an issue. What about debt? They notice, uh, Hamilton notices it this way. The public debt of the union would be a further cause of collusion, uh, collision between the separate states or confederacies. The appointment in the first instance and the progressive extinguishment afterward would be alike productive of ill humor and animosity. How would it be possible to agree upon a rule of Uh, appropriation meant satisfactory to all. There is scarcely any that can be proposed which is entirely free from real objections. These, as usual, would be exaggerated by the adverse interests of the parties. There are even dissimilar views among the states as to the general principle of just discharging the public debt. Some of them either less impressed with the importance of national credit, or because their citizens have little, if any, immediate interest in the question, feel an indifference, if not a repugnance, to the payment of the domestic debt at any rate. These would be inclined to magnify the difficulties of distribution. Others of them, a numerous body of whose citizens are creditors to the public beyond proportion of the state, in the total amount of the national debt, would be strenuous for some equitable and effective provision. The procrastinations of the former would excite the resentments of the latter. The settlement of a rule would, in the meantime, be postponed by real differences of opinion and affected delays. The citizens of the states interested would clamor. Foreign powers would urge for the satisfaction of their just demands, and the peace of the states would be hazardous, or hazarded, to the double contingency of external invasion and internal contention. So how do you settle public national debt when you've got creditors and when you've got states with um, different beliefs on, on the value of credit debt and how you see it and is it important or is it not important, which is ironic considering... Most people don't believe that we were dealing with that at that point in time. They don't realize that we had massive amounts of debt to deal with, and this was a real important issue in that day and time. Most people don't even realize it, and that's sad. All right, there's still two more parts to this, because just as much as the contracts or the interests of the states or if they were to be disunioned, then the confederacies or the individual nations... Uh, just as much as the the issues between them are important, what about private contracts and who's going to help mitigate and represent these? If you've got private contracts that exist across what are now state lines, right? Well, that's a really good question, and uh, they note it like this: Hamilton saying. Laws in violation of private contracts, as they, are amount to, as they amount to aggressions on the rights of those states whose citizens are injured by them, may be considered as another probable source of hostility. We are not authorized to expect that a more liberal or more equitable spirit would preside over the legislations of the individual states hereafter, if unrestrained by any additional checks. Then we have heretofore seen, in too many instances, disgracing their several codes." We have observed the disposition to retaliation excited in Connecticut in consequence of the enormities perpetuated by the legislator of Rhode Island. And we reasonably infer that in similar cases, under other circumstances, a war not of parchment but of the sword would chastise such atrocious breaches of moral obligation and social justice. Oh my gosh, the term social justice. Yeah, back in the 1780s, folks, this was a thing, but it meant something completely different than it does today. But this is the point, right? If you can't have private contracts be agreed upon, what happens? You can't just have citizens going and murdering other citizens in another state. Which is actually a nation or part of the different confederacy? If there's no union, right? That that's an act of war. That's an act of aggression. Then what? And then I think one of the more interesting uh, arguments comes from Hamilton towards the end here of Federalist Number Seven, where he talks about incompatible alliances in the issues that can arise there, and it's something that I don't think a lot of people thought of and still don't think of when they think of uh, this era. But he notes, the probability of incompatible alliances between the different states or confederacies and different foreign nations and the effects of this situation upon the peace of the whole have been sufficiently unfolded in some preceding papers. From the view they have exhibited of this part of the subject, this conclusion is to be drawn. That America, if not connected at all, or only by the feeble tie of a simple league, offensive and defensive, would be the operation of such jarring alliances, be gradually entangled in all of the pernicious labyrinths of European politics and wars, and by the destructive contentions of the parts into which she was divided, would be would be likely to become a prey to the artifices and machinations of powers equally The enemies of them all. Dividi et impera must be the motto of every nation that either hates or fears us. So, the warning there, if you're not hip to Latin, is divide and conquer. That's really the argument here, is because we might have very different alliances, maybe some to France, maybe some to England, maybe some to Spain, maybe some to um, other powers like the Netherlands and such, right? Wouldn't it just then be divide and conquer if we were just going to war? Because colonization, empire, that was a thing, a very large thing at that point in time in world history. Wouldn't this just be another divide and conquer? Absolutely a very valid argument here by Hamilton. So Hamilton in this one talks about the states, right? Talks about what would happen if... They were disunioned and names territorial disputes, commerce, public debt, private contracts, and alliances. So five different things that could all contribute to not peace, but war. And is that good for the 13 states or the 13 nations, if they were to be that, or the three or four confederacies that were being uh, thrown about? Is that good? Is that a a positive or would you be able to lessen the impact of that by a greater, more intact union? I think it's a intriguing argument that Hamilton is making here. And with that folks, I hope you all have a really fantastic start to your week. Please be smart, be safe, be kind, make sure you eat all of your meals today, and as always, Matthew. 547.